This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for December 23rd, 2019. The U.S. president has relatively few powers and they're concentrated in the area of foreign policy. In this podcast, I'll talk to an author who has written a book arguing that even those powers are being exceeded, particularly in the area of war. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Coming up on today's podcast. People have said, you know, well, you have to respect the office. Well, we pay too much respect to the office. We treat him like a king. And it's not just Trump. It's uh, Obama before him. Careful who who you're saying we about there. Well, I mean the we as the American people do uh, in our society. But first, I want to say thanks to all of my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate them all. Patreon is a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, and that helps me to devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. If you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. So here's the thing. A common talking point on gun control for people discussing banning assault rifles, military-grade weapons, or any particular category of guns, or all guns for that matter, is the difficulty of actually removing any guns that were banned from the people who currently own them. The people who have guns are probably the sort of people who aren't all that minded to give them up, and on top of that, they are the sort of people who, you know, have guns, so that's an issue my cold, dead hands, and all that. Gun control advocates say that it wouldn't be such a problem as it's made out to be, and their opponents say that it's the sort of problem where you don't know how big the problem is until you have that problem, and that's not a good position to be in. But now we have a test case. On March 15th, an Australian immigrant murdered 51 people at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, apparently motivated by far-right white nationalist ideology. He was arrested and will be tried next year, but in the immediate aftermath, the Prime Minister announced that there would be major new restrictions to firearms ownership in New Zealand. Before the attack, there was relatively little control on the ownership of guns in New Zealand. It was probably the only developed country other than the United States not to require the registration of all firearms, although they did require the registration of the type of automatic rifles that were to be banned. New Zealand is a relatively small and thinly populated country, It's about the same size and population as the state of Colorado, and with a similar layout, a couple of bigger cities, some smaller towns, and lots of wilderness. There are lots of guns in New Zealand, perhaps one gun for every four people, which is a huge number by the standards of most developed countries, but only a fraction of the level of gun ownership in the U.S., 
Anyway, military-grade automatic rifles have now been banned in New Zealand, and this week the buyback scheme ended. This scheme offered 95% of the purchase price of now-banned guns to owners who turned them in. So how did it go? 56,000 weapons were handed in. But it's difficult to say exactly how successful that was. What percentage of the banned guns were handed in? To work that out, you need to have an idea of how many of those guns were out there in the first place, and estimates of that vary, to say the least. The Council of Licensed Firearms Owners is New Zealand's pro-gun organisation, and they claim that there were 170,000 such guns in the country before the buyback, and their spokesperson, Nicole McKee, said that 50,000 is not a number to boast about. That's a reasonable point. It would seem that exactly one-third of those 170,000 guns were turned in, but before the buyback began... New Zealand police said that there were about 15,000 registered guns in that category to be collected. Since they collected four times that number, it's clear that the 15,000 number was a big underestimate, but there's no real evidence for the 170,000 number either. The person giving it, as I say, is from the biggest pro-gun organisation in New Zealand, and it's a bit ironic that it's called the Council of Licensed Firearms Owners, since if what they're saying is true, then way more than 90% of their members are breaking the law by not licensing their firearms as required by law. But one thing that didn't happen was any resistance. Many guns were handed in, undoubtedly many weren't, though it's impossible to say really how many, but there were no shootouts, no armed resistance. All countries are different, of course, but New Zealand is about as close to a guinea pig for a mini United States as you can get. It's got a similar settler frontier spirit, it's got wide open spaces where people live far from any real government authority. So how is a ban on already widely distributed firearms going? Middling. No resistance, no violence. Lots of guns collected, probably lots not collected, but it's unclear how many. And will it reduce violence? We'll see. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line, I have Ivan Eland. Ivan's a senior fellow at the Independent Institute. He has a PhD in public policy from George Washington University. He's been a director of defense policy at the Cato Institute. Earlier this year, he published War and the Rogue Presidency, Restoring the Republic After Congressional Failure. Uh, Ivan, you think that the president has and the presidency has taken too much power to itself. Why is that? How did that happen? And why is it a bad thing? Well, of course, uh, the, the presidency has vastly increased in power since our the Constitution was written back in the uh, late uh, 1700s. And it didn't for a long time. At uh, the turn of the 20th century, it was really pretty much the same 
office as it had been uh, originally. Of course, there had been spikes in presidential authority during the Civil War mm -hmm. uh, and that sort of thing. But uh, really, the presidency was the same office, and it was a modest office. Uh, and the Congress uh, was supposed to be the premier um, organ of the federal government, of course, of the three branches that we have. They're all independent, but uh, they also have some shared powers as well. But the Congress is in Article One of the Constitution uh, for a purpose that saying that the people as houses should uh, decide policy and that the president should merely execute the laws domestically and execute any wars that the Congress uh, decides on or declares mm -hmm. overseas or in some cases uh, closer to home. But at any rate, the president was supposed to be an executor, which is why they call it the executive branch. But over time in the 20th century, we had very big wars uh, World War One, World War Two, and a, a Cold War. And then we had more recently uh, the War on Terror, which still goes on. And all of these wars have vastly increased presidential power simply because uh, it's very hard for the Congress, which has 535 members in both houses, mm -hmm. to run wars. And we've and we've gone uh, really, um, we've intervened over. Uh, U.S. history 500 times, uh, but a quarter of those uh, have come in the last, uh, you know, two decades. So, so it's uh, the the and many of these have been small, but some of them have been larger uh, as well, uh, like the most recent Iraq War. So, but they, these wars, especially the big ones or the long ones, such as the Cold War, which was a which was a Cold War, but Meaning, uh, not engaged in in a hot war. There were still hot an wars intense, in that an Cold War, period. but it was forty over forty years. Yes, the U.S. and the Soviet Union uh, going back, and of course there was a nuclear uh, uh, threat that could have destroyed the world. Then after that, we got into we had a little bit of break during the nineties, but then of course we got it after nine eleven. We got into the war on terror, which was much like the Cold War. It was it's been a long. Hall and a lot of times, uh, you know, executive power increases as well there. So it's not just one president. It probably started way back in Woodrow Wilson's time during the First World, World War. I. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that explains that more power has accrued to the presidency. But is that necessarily a bad thing? I can see how also, as you say, this may not be what the founding fathers had intended. But is it necessarily a bad thing? Well, in the United States, uh, the founding fathers wanted three branches and they wanted uh, the Congress to be the, the first branch and the other two to constrain the Congress. Now we have uh, the presidency as the premier branch and the Congress just barely functioning and the Supreme Court providing, you know, an occasional restraint on the president, mm -hmm. but not all that much. And of course, the original purpose of the three branches of government was not to be efficient because it's a very inefficient system, but to stop the tyranny of any one branch. And of course, that's sort of what we have now. And this has been, uh, it's sort of like the old analogy with the frog. If you throw a frog into a, a pot of boiling water, he's going to climb out right away. But if you put the frog in the water and then gradually turn up 
the temperature a degree at a time or over time, he doesn't really realize that the, he's scalding to death. And I think that's the, we're on the latter path there uh, because we've come to a point, I think, and I think it's obvious at the current time that the president is too, too powerful and it hasn't been obvious uh, up to up to the point where people have gotten used to Ivan, it. Ivan, and, Ivan, you come. You know, you you're a fellow at the uh, Independent Institute. That's certainly a right leaning institute. You're sounding almost treasonous there in in suggesting that you might be criticizing President Trump. Well, of course, that's the whole point. You see, we we, we people have said, you know, well, you have to respect the office. Well, we pay too much respect to the office. We treat him like a king. And it's not just Trump. It's uh, Obama C- before ca- him. Careful who, careful who you're saying we about there. Well, I mean the we as the American people do uh, in our society mm-hmm. uh, because we, um, you know, we, we expect the president to, prov- to provide comfort when there's a, either a school shooting or a natural disaster or something else. And, of course, the founders never envisioned that role, like he's the father uh, uh, you know, in chief, as well as the president in chief, and even the commander in chief, uh, he's the commander in chief of the armed forces, as the Supreme Court said during the uh, during the Truman administration. He's not the commander in chief of the country, mm-hmm. uh, but, but you never know. At the latest modern presidents have have operated that way. Uh, George Bush, for in, for example, said that he could disobey uh, laws that the Congress passed because it was a national emergency mm-hmm. after 9-11. Okay, hold, hold on that thought there for a minute, because you're describing something that has unquestionably happened. But is it perhaps inevitable, given that we live in a much faster moving, much more complex world than the Founding Fathers ever envisaged? And there is a joke that if the Congress building was on fire, the the Congress might assemble a committee to examine the price of fire extinguishers. It's just too large a body to make snap decisions at the speed that sometimes they need to be made. Isn't it just inevitable that that power then accrues to the president? Well, I mean, certainly transportation and communication methods have increased presidential power. Now, whether they really needed to, that's another question. This argument, the complex society argument, Mm -hmm. was one of the arguments that Woodrow Wilson originally made. You know, he was a PhD political scientist, and he saw the opportunity for, you know, this complex world. Uh, He was, that was the original progressive, uh, you know, viewpoint that we had to have experts run the country and they had to be able to act fast. And of course, this this uh, argument was magnified during the Cold War with the confrontation with the Soviet Union. But of course, the founders have, in terms of warfare and foreign policy, the founders had already, already built that into the system. They changed, during the Constitutional Convention, they changed the word uh the Congress will make war to the Congress will declare war. And mm-hmm. the reason that they did it, they, they even said that was because the president might have to, in extreme circumstances, you know, uh, uh, run a self-defense if, if the United yeah, States the, the were attacked. The country gets invaded, you can't wait until the whole of Congress assembles. Yes, yep. yes but are they always intended that the Congress would eventually declare war, even in those cases. But in offensive war, which most of our wars now are offensive, meaning overseas, the c- country is not under attack. And even after 9-11, uh, it wasn't to repel the attack. 
we went to Afghanistan to root out the problem. And of course, they did pass a resolution, at least approving the uh, uh, military action against the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Mm-hmm. So, of course, that's been you know abused to attack everybody else under the plan in the planet. But um, but anyway, so this idea, even during the Cold War, the United States could have retaliated if they saw that the Soviets were going, or any other country, such as China later on in the Cold War, mm-hmm. if they were going to launch a nuclear attack against the United States. The president does have a, the power of self-defense, but if you want, if the president wakes up tomorrow and decides, you know, the North Korea, the negotiations are not going very well, and that we're going to launch a nu- an offensive nuclear attack on North Korea, you really need a a uh, under the old system, you know, I mean, under the original system, you need a declaration of war. As, uh, as, envisaged, was, as envisaged by the founding fathers. But there's yes, another problem yes. uh, with the advance of technology, because not only does it does you know the world require a quicker response, but that technology is available to everybody else as well. So if you assemble Congress to de- debate and decide whether they're going to, for example, go to war against North Korea, uh, that kind of gives the game away, doesn't it? Well, it does, but I mean, if we're going to launch an offensive nuclear war uh, against another country with with no uh, indication that they're they're mobilizing their own forces, then I think we really do need to take the time to consider that. The only time we should we didn't we shouldn't uh, uh, you know spend that time is if we're under attack, mm-hmm. either nuclear or conventional. But of course, the founding system still works. The part this idea during the Cold War that we had to have split second uh, reaction that was already built into the system under the under the founder's system. So yeah, this I, I, idea I that sound, we have Ivan, to Ivan, I might sound like I'm advocating a nuclear war here, which I'm not doing really. But just for the sake of argument, for example, uh, North Korea has an enormous range of artillery pointed straight at. Seoul, which is the capital of South Korea, which is about 25 miles away from the border. And the assessment is that they could cause several hundred thousand civilian casualties within a few minutes by just releasing all of that conventional artillery. So one must admit there are some cases where the United States would need to make a surprise attack. And that would really be pretty much impossible if that wording was followed strictly. Wouldn't that be true? Well, of course, the first problem is that we've committed to all these alliances and we have troops stationed overseas. So the uh, if you want to stretch the original founders to, to, to say, well, we can, the president can also defend an attack on any U.S. forces overseas, mm-hmm. I suppose you can do that. But the, the real problem there is that we have these forces overseas and uh, these countries, South Korea, the Europeans, uh, Japan, they're all rich enough to, you know, they're usually arrayed against countries that are poorer, namely North Korea, Russia, and certainly maybe not in the, well, Japan and China are, China per capita income is below uh, Japan, but of course, you know, the allies could band together against China and be the first line of defense. The problem is we're the first line of defense. And that is that gives you no time to do that. But even even if you want to say, well, we do need to defend these places. Well, I suppose you can, you know, say the 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 self-defense capability should 
you know, apply to our forces overseas since we're running this sort of foreign policy. But I would also question whether we need to run such an active foreign policy overseas by defending all these uh, countries because that, that they're might be, perfectly that might be a capable of defending themselves. Yes, that might be a different debate. And I think we'll move away from nuclear war since it's not the happiest of topics. But in terms of other areas, do you see a lot of presidential overreach, and by overreach, I mean power being exercised when it shouldn't, in non-foreign policy areas, in domestic policy in the US? Yes, I think so. And Schlesinger, Arthur Schlesinger was a historian. And during the Nixon administration, he was concerned about Nixon's uh, overreach. And he, But his theory, the, he coined the term imperial presidency. Mm-hmm. This presidency had built up in foreign policy. But then he said, well, you're turning it inward. And then the, he cited the Watergate uh, episode, which it started, the plumbers unit started, which was the uh, unit that the Republican Party, uh, uh, you know, started breaking I, I should into very various briefly places. Explain, I should very briefly explain the plumbers. This was an analogy. They were there to fix leaks, but not leaks in water pipes. They were there to bog the offices of people who uh, Nixon thought was being disloyal and were leaking information to the press. And these were yes, operating that, under the direction of Nixon. Yes, exactly. And that, that what started that was the leaks from the Cam, the secret Cambodian war, air and ground that he was running that, and that no one knew about. Congress didn't know about it. The American people didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. And so foreign policy. But of course, then they started this unit to bug people they thought were leaking this in the Defense Department and other places. And, of course, then the, this group of people started breaking into, were used for campaign dirty tricks, breaking into the Watergate Hotel and other plans. used groups. by the Democrats as an office. Yes, yes, yes. So that's how the Watergate scandal. But there's other instances. I mean, uh, in George W. Bush uh, administration, he uh, used this uh, torturing people against the torture laws of both domestic and international. He uh, suspended habeas corpus, which only Congress is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. He uh, had military commissions, which are unconstitutional. Uh, people are supposed to get a jury trial, except if you're in the military during war. And so, you know, uh, and also domestic spying, which is uh, which was against the law. And he violated all these laws uh, domestically, but he said, well, you know, terrorism, they attacked us on their home soil. So I need to do all this other stuff. And in fact, Congress specifically, the, the White House had requested, uh, in the United States, the phrase in the United States. And the Congress rejected that because they knew that that was an invitation to do this stuff. Well, he did it anyway. So. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are numerous examples. War usually leads to bigger government at home. And a lot of times, like during the Vietnam War, of course, we had all sorts of domestic spying with the Army, the NSA, the CIA on domestic anti-war groups, uh, World War One, World War Two. We also had these types of things, uh, World War Two being the incarceration for absolutely no reason of Japanese and Japanese Americans, etc. So these these types of things. And of course, just government penetration of the economy uh, during these wars and uh, even during the Cold War, uh, the military industrial complex and that sort of thing increased the government's uh, size as well. And of course, Congress abdicated a lot of its power during these wars and in the Cold War because of this idea of the ideas that we've just been saying that this this faux idea of the of the um, 
that the president need to respond on a hair's notice mm -hmm. to various things because we've had an over if you have an overactive foreign policy you're going to you're going to create emergencies to for the for the government to fix right and when you do that then of course you, you the president ha has to do it because it's an emergency we just saw president trump saying well you know there's a border emergency so the congress has refused to uh fund my border wall. So mm -hmm. I'm going to raid the Defense Department to, to get the funds. And of course, that was totally illegal. And he was abusing a national emergency declaration. But the very fact that the, he, he, the national emergency is sort of a questionable thing anyway, since the founders really never put that in the Constitution. In fact, they did. The only thing they allowed was that the Congress could basically temporarily uh, uh, rescind the the habeas corpus, mm -hmm. which is your ability to challenge the government's detention of, of you as a prisoner uh, without trial, uh, that they can suspend that during wartime uh, or an insurrection. And, of course, Bush did it uh, without that, and it's supposed to be done by Congress. So uh, this was, you know, this national emergency uh, is is broader than that. And of course, there's nothing in the Constitution that says we can ever have a national emergency. Um, Ivan, you've thrown my line of questioning off because you're coming across, I had perhaps anticipated coming from the Independent Institute and the Cato Institute that you might take a more right-wing perhaps line. You're coming across maybe as a as a hippie peacenik there. I hope you take that as, as a compliment. But steering away from, and I know that it's very important for this issue, but steering away from international affairs, war, and so forth. Do you think that there is just the march of technology, that everything is bigger now than the Founding Fathers could even have imagined, that government needs a a, a guiding hand? And you said the word of, of, a, of a, you know, that the president comes across almost like a, a father, but there is a need for a unified theme of government, isn't there? Well, I think, uh, you know, if we go on, certainly transportation, communications, technologies uh, has all increased. But the real question is, you know, as each person becomes smarter, you and I are smarter because we have the Internet. Uh, you can look up anything you want now at a drop of a hat. Mm -hmm. uh, but we become smarter. Each person becomes smarter. But that volume of information becomes so great that we're actually dumber, relatively speaking, because a knowledge has expanded so much because of all this technology that any one person is actually dumber, even though they're, they're smarter in the absolute sense, but relative to the amount of information out there about the world, uh, there's actually too much data. And therefore, I think one really has to ask yourself, can the government stay ahead of the market? And uh, almost, it's very difficult. Now, certainly government needs to do certain things, but when government plays in the market directly and tries to affect the market, I think that, you know, what, what do you mean by trying are, to affect the markets market? are based on people putting their own resources out there and, you know, negotiating price and that sort of thing. And it's difficult to beat that as an indicator. Now, if you don't like the outcome of what the market gives you, then certainly the government can, you know, like, for instance, if we have income inequality because of the market, then the government can say, well, okay, we have to find some way to equalize that because it's going to destroy the middle class and maybe destroy democracy. Okay, that's one area. You know, climate change is another one. There may be areas where the government, 
needs to do something in some of these areas, of course. But I think it should be very, you know, it should be the last resort. And it also should be after the market is allowed to work. And if you don't like the market outcome, uh, then, uh, you know, the government should be restrained in those areas, even even in the, under those circumstances uh, where uh, you might think that there's, uh, um, you know, more of a role for a government. Because I, I think mm -hmm. that where the, the technology has made the government less able to, uh, you know, run society because it's always behind the market indicators because laws, they pass, the Congress passes laws and then they'll say, well, you know, this is kind of out of date. Well, the last time we took it up was 10 years ago, right? Or 20 years ago or something, you know. And so politics goes a lot slower uh, than than the than the technology and so you know it, it's i think the government should be more modest about you know running a society i think uh woodrow wilson's argument is not uh very good in fact it's the opposite i think as society grows more complex the government is less uh liable to to do a good job and, and, and an example is 9-11 here we had a small terrorist group who was nimble, and mm -hmm. they attacked us. So the first thing that happens is the government, we increase the government. We increase the intelligence community. We build a new bureaucracy over the intelligence community. We build a new, we squish a bunch of agencies together and put a new bureaucracy of Homeland Security Department, a whole new department over this. And, of course, the Homeland Security Department is notorious for being ineffective and inefficient. But so our we're fighting this nimble pause terrorist there, group. Pause there, pause there, Ivan. You said Homeland are notorious for being inefficient and ineffective. That may well be true, but they do suffer from one disadvantage in that they can't really crow about their successes. When they're successful, nothing happens and nobody hears about them. They, that, that, there is a possibility that we don't know that they're doing very important things all the time. And that kind of speaks to what I think would be a pushback against your argument that there is a need for nimble responses, even internally, even if you disregard the, the war, which is obviously a, a major part of the president's responsibilities. Do you think that there, that, that role should just be uh, forgotten about? Well, no, but I think that, um, first of all, bureaucracies tend to crow in general about their having been in the security bureaucracies for for 15 years mm -hmm. bureaucracies will find some way to crow about their accomplishments in a general way they may not give the details of this or that thing because it's classified or whatever but they will find it they will find a way to let congress and the american people know that they're you know that they had the success i'm not saying they never have a success but what i'm saying is was using this as an example. You have this small, nimble terrorist group. You know, we usually get attacked by countries if we get attacked, like Japan. We haven't been attacked many times. Mm -hmm. uh, the British uh, uh, invaded uh, after we had already declared war in 1812, and then we have the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Those are the two major ones. But but usually we get attacked if anything, if any by anybody, but uh, by a government, a country. This was a small, nimble group. So what do we do? Uh, the, the tendency in Washington is 
Well, we've got to make the bureaucracy bigger to fight this. Well, if you want to fight terrorism, the worst thing that you can do, the, pro the problem was during 9-11, the intelligence community and the law enforcement community, they weren't talking to each other. And so now we have bigger bureaucracies to fight a small, nimble group. In fact, probably the best thing to do would have been, would have been to streamline, you know, at the time we had uh, 16 intelligence agencies. Now we have 17 with the new bureaucracy they took. So but maybe you should have streamlined, you know, these these agencies so that they could effectively talk to each other and fight the nimble group. Because, of course, the terrorists, they didn't have to go through an interagency process to, uh, you know, to attack the United States. And that's still that's still true today. So if if that's one of the major threats, I think that's a big problem. So you know, the government just tends to increase and reflexively whenever okay. an attack happens. Okay. So you then say that you suggest reforms that would allow Congress to rein in a rogue presidency. Can you give me what the, your top reform would be? Well, I think, you know, that first of all, the, the Congress has to centralize itself more uh, simply because to compete with the president. Uh, one of the biggest developments of the presidency was way back in William McKinley's um, term back at the turn of the 20th century when the, we first had a national press. We had we the newspapers started networking or syndicating yep. across the United States. So that, that's when the national press came into being. Well, he manipulated the national press so he could talk to the people directly uh, as using the bully pulpit. Now, this be was became, became now, famous. Now he's, now he's got Twitter. But tell me, Ivan, specifically, what's your top reform? Well, I would I would centralize the, the procedures in Congress to put even more power on the leadership in Congress so that they can push back against the presidency. I would also, uh, you know, we, we need to pare down the government. And so because the executive branch has 99 percent of all government employees. So we need to reduce the size of the executive branch because the Congress is just outgunned as far as expertise and that sort of thing. So I think a general uh, look at the government and what we can prune would help. But I mean, you have to have uh institutional reforms within Congress. And that's the main thrust of my book is that the Congress has really abdicated a lot of this power and they can get it back because they have the constitutional authority to be the dominant branch, but they don't because the president can go over their heads to the people. And that's less, that's less uh, uh, likely if the leadership of both um, branches of the, of the Congress has centralized leadership and more party discipline. But we're in a partisan time, but our parties are not that strong. That's true. Ivan Eland, fellow at the Independent Institute and author of War and the Rogue Presidency, Restoring the Republic After Congressional Failure. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you, William. If you like the Challenging Opinions podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcast providers. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends, but most important, make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at challengingo on Twitter, and follow Ivan Eland at Ivan underscore Eland. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or topic for a future show. 
And thanks to everyone who's signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate them helping me to devote more time to researching topics and guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, go to patreon.com slash challenging opinions, or you'll find a link on the website. You can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email, or contact me. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.